Welcome to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Today on my show, we're going to talk about the Texas shooting nightmare. Ask the right questions. We have guests in studio today, Dr. Peter McCullough and John Leake, authors of this book, The Courage to Face COVID-19. Cannot wait to tell you about this book and have you get to listen to their answers and explanations and ideas. And finally, America Can We Talk, Change is Coming. And of course, I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. On America Can We Talk, I talk about election integrity, border security, healthcare freedom, race relations, energy and tax policy, education policy, free speech and assembly, freedom of religion, and all other issues that touch on the God-given right of every American to life, liberty, and the pursuit of their version of happiness. Stay tuned. America Can We Talk is sponsored by GC Works, a Dallas-based company performing advanced technology research in the oil and gas industry. And hello again and welcome to America Can We Talk and to today's First Five. I did not know during the show yesterday about the horrific school shooting right here in the great state of Texas, a little town called Uvalde. And I want to spend just a brief period of time this first five because we have a wonderful interview we have scheduled. I can't wait to have you hear our interview. I want to talk a little bit about what happened yesterday uh, in this horrific shooting. I want to start with the victims. In this sweet little small town in Texas, Uvalde, Texas, there is a, a composite of several of the victims. I think of 16 of them. I want to just show their faces because I think, first of all, you honor the victims. These are babies. These are babies. These are I think they're all third and fourth grade, I think was the story. So they're and obviously mostly Hispanic um, and you know, just, just young, sweet faces. And so if you want to support the, the, uh, the families in that school, is Rob Elementary. Uh, there is a GoFundMe set up. It's, uh, you can bring me back. It's called GoFundMe.com. Uh, it's called for Rob, R-O-B-B Elementary. The reason I suggest you do that is these are not families of wealth. These are not families who have the capacity to... Um, you know, necessarily pay for the, a funeral they didn't have planned and for all the expenses they're going to run into. So you can bring me back on screen, please. And so um, I urge you to go to GoFundMe. I recognize most conservatives prefer Give, Send, Go. I went to their website and they don't have anything up yet. So GoFundMe has for Rob Elementary. I think they're almost at a million dollars and those people are going to use it. Second, I want to honor the heroes. Uh, one in particular was a U.S. Border Patrol agent who happened to be in the area. And this school, by the way, had some security on hand. And uh, just weren't quite ready or did not get the shot off they needed to. But one U.S. Border Patrol agent heard, I guess he heard a radio call, but he, he went right to the school, went right in, uh, armed, and he was able to take down this 18-year-old shooter. And this is a wonderful thing because he just decided, not waiting for instructions from on high, I'm going to stop this situation. Wonderful thing. When I, and I did look and didn't find his name. He's a Border Patrol agent uh, who basically saved the day. All the children killed and the two teachers were in one classroom. And those people, clearly, and not faulting a one of them, but they didn't have a way to defend themselves, which leads me to my third point I want to say. Clearly, the anti-American left is going to jump on this incident as an opportunity to push gun control, which, you know, they push gun control all the time. 
I do want to just tell you briefly here in the gray state of Texas today, Governor Abbott, our governor, was making a speech about expressing compassion and concern and Beto O'Rourke, with the maturity of a 12-year-old, didn't interrupt the press conference. I mean, started yelling incoherently at a press conference as Governor Abbott was speaking. And fortunately, the mayor down there said a few bad words and got Beto out of that place. But this is a guy who has run on gun control, which does not fly in the state of Texas. But the, what I really want to hit in this first five is instead of just focusing on gun control and taking away guns from lawful citizens, there are really serious questions we should be asking. In the 1960s, 70s, even 50s, young people had guns. It was very common for people, students at high school, drive to school, gun in the back of their pickup truck, on the gun rack, and these shootings didn't happen. The guns did not cause the violence. And you really, um, for Americans who want better answers, better solutions, you have to ask the right questions. What has changed about American society? I'd like to posit a few things I think that the people should do, the investigators should do. We need to find a reliable investigator we trust, which may take a lot of people off the list, but reliable investigators to look into this young man. Oh, by the way, let me put up a picture of this young man. I sent to you, Mr. Emilio, I sent you a picture of this, the shooter. Uh, this is the second picture I sent you. He's going, you didn't send me. Yeah, I sent a second email. He's dressed like a girl. That's the shooter. We have that? We're looking. Okay, you'll see it in a minute. This gentleman, we can call him that, this young man, this young murder, 18-year-old, there he is. He's an 18-year-old Hispanic guy, loves dressing like a girl. I'm not, I don't know if he's saying he's transgender, but he certainly likes cross-dressing. And he's a confused young man. I mean, he's obviously healthy males do not like dressing up like girls. You can come back to me now. And I want to make this point about one thing that shifted in our society. We used to be able in our society to say, you know, young man, actually, you're a boy. You're, even you, if your teacher told you you're transgender, you can pick your gender. This is not true. You have anatomy. It is God-given. It's with you when you're born. You're a boy. We somehow think we're being compassionate by indulging in the pretend of the transgender movement. You're not really a boy. You're whatever you think you are. This is not healthy. It does not help a young man like this maintain or attain stability. So we need to be firmer and clearer in the way we talk to young people about truth and not truth. Because there are countless ways in which we do understand we have to teach our children truth and not truth. But somehow, and this man, this young man, nobody who is, has their head on straight, nobody who has some core sense of their identity and of, of confidence in themselves, no young boy dresses up like a girl. This is a mental health signal to his family. Second question that need to be asked, who in his family had any idea it was happening? His mother was apparently a drug addict and not in the picture. Police showing up at the house all the time, solving fights between the mom and the son over drugs. So problematic family background. Lives with a grandmother whom he shot. As it turns out, by the way, yesterday's news indicated she'd passed on. She apparently survived or she's still with us. I believe she's in critical condition. So maybe she can tell us something. But there needs to be a thorough investigation of everything about this young man's life. What websites he visits? What does he watch online? Does he watch porn? Does he watch hard porn? Clear connections exist between porn and violence. Does he watch a lot of porn? Does he have contact with any kind of drugs? Has he been a drug user himself or a drug abuser? Has he been in touch with gangs? I mean, people who encourage violent behavior. His life over the last, I don't know, five or six years, should be deeply investigated, should be understood all the influences that brought a young man 
to walk into a public school and kill 19 children and two teachers with apparently no motivation. There needs to be an investigation of all the things in our society that we always ignore when we're looking at these kind of shootings. We hear the left screaming for gun control and the right turns into, again, accounting for why the Second Amendment is in the Constitution, why it is vital to maintaining uh, the balance of power between people and the government, um, and that the idea of taking guns away from people who don't commit crime because someone did is like taking away a driver's license from everyone because somebody drive, drove drunk. We don't do that. We, uh, there may be some need for some change in gun laws, but the bottom line is to really get at this kind of situation and try to prevent them in the future, we need to look at all the societal conditions and be honest about what's happened to our country and to our society. We need to be honest about what forces were shaping this, this young man's thinking. That is the only way we're going to actually move forward as a society and try to prevent future incidents like this. Last shot, and this is more than five I know, but the last shot in this first five is this. Several years ago, after a very ugly and painful shooting, uh, there was an effort by the Texas legislature to put in place protections, try to prevent this from happening again. Instead of doing what I would suggest the common sense things are, such as, sadly, perhaps need for metal detectors, limiting the number of entrances or egresses and entrances to any building, uh, having an armed officer on hand at all times, the kind of things that would actually allow for the protection of the students whose lives are at risk. Instead of doing this, in Texas, we set up a massive school in-school psychiatrist program, which is basically a data mining operation by the public schools and the entities that love to data mine your children, gathering data and allowing schools to know more and more about your personal family life, which they really have no business knowing. I don't think the psychiatric centers set up by Governor Abbott it, while he was being opposed by many conservatives who were saying this is not enough, it's not going to help, you've got to get physical protection, uh, that didn't happen. I hope this time it will. I hope we'll take measures that can keep children safe, just like we have armed people protecting all of our politicians, armed people protecting the Congress, the White House, everywhere else we understand. When precious life is being is in somewhere, we arm the people who guard them, and we understand they have to have armed people around them. I'm very sorry America's society is in this condition. I wish they weren't. But to save future lives in America, we've got to decide that we're going to protect our children the same way we protect our Congress and the White House. And that, my very fine friends, is today's first five. Okay, so to, I have a great guest in the studio. It's just the coolest thing they happen to be available. I'm just so glad. I'm going to show you the book, and then we're going to talk about this is a book uh, by Dr. Peter McCullough and John Leake. We're both here today. You know, I always, yeah, okay, I'm holding it the right way. Good. That is the book, and you can get it um, on Amazon. I, do, I use Amazon, still don't tell anyone. Uh, but they also have their own website, and we're going to talk about their website, too, um, because I want to have you know where you can go, not just to get information about uh, the book, um, but also to get, um, uh, to get information about the authors and more of the research they've been doing. So, well, welcome to the show, Dr. Peter McCullough and John Leake. Hi, guys. Hi. Thanks for having <laughs> us. I'm glad you're both here. I'm glad you have the book up for people to see, too. That's great. Um, well, Dr. McCullough, you've joined me on my show before. And previously, we were talking about just your discovery early on and your confidence in your years of medical practice that caused you to recognize that there were treatments available. I mean, I don't know if treatments is a word you're allowed to say, but therapies available to deal with COVID. And it seems like the federal government, the NIH, Dr. Fauci, they still haven't caught on 
to what you and doctors in the country have been saying for, I mean, two years now. So I'd like to just start with that. Do you think that there's more waking up in the federal institutions about all of the availability of effective treatments for COVID? I haven't gotten any phone calls from this administration. I did from the prior administration. And as many know, I've testified in the U.S. Senate now twice. But my intuitions were right that this was a treatable illness. This, uh, there is no infectious disease that is unassailable. That, that, in fact, we can always do something to lessen the intensity and duration of symptoms and by that mechanism, reduce the risks of hospitalization and death. And many people here in Dallas and all over the country know because they've been through the sequence of drugs, the various drugs we use in combination, including emergency use authorized drugs and then those available through prescription generic. Absolutely. And you know, it's a kind of funny thing. I remember you on my show before. I could not get my mouth around. You said monoclonal antibody infusions. And I kept saying, can you say that again? And now, as I was telling you before the show started, my husband and I um, ended up getting COVID um, after the time we were here. And we, among the things we got, ivermectin, inhaled budesonide, and monoclonal antibodies. And actually, the service provider came to our house because they didn't think it was great for us to be out because my husband and I both had it. it. They were truly amazing. I mean, we felt better so quickly. And, um, and I mean, Th I, that's state of the art. It's actually called the McCullough Protocol. It's been copyrighted. That's the basis of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeon uh, Protocols. There are separate ones by the Frontline uh, Critical Care Network. But the observation that our government agencies, the CDC, the NIH, and FDA, still do not endorse early treatment at home, like the type of treatment you and your husband received to get you through the illness and eliminate your risk of hospitalization and death. The fact that they don't support that, in fact, they still espouse the opposite, basically denying treatment and then in effect promoting hospitalization and death should disturb all Americans. It, it sure should. Um, you know, I can tell you that I didn't have your book when I was preparing for this. So I have your, I mean, I didn't have the physical copies. I have it on my Kindle all marked up. So let me just pull that up. But uh, so uh, John Leake, I want to be sure and tell people your background before we go to the first question. You're a true crime writer. Okay. That is just, I, I am a voracious reader and I want to read your books because I love reading true crime. Um, so you wrote this book and you said that, uh, it, or co-wrote it with Dr. Fa uh, Dr. McCullough, but you talked in the beginning about watching how America was dealing with COVID when it first came on the scene. And, and it, as a true crime writer and an investigator, in fact, I should do a fuller introduction of you, by the way, want to just mention, uh, actually, yeah, I'm going to quickly tell our, our listeners about John Leake, uh, author of two crime books. He wrote The Double Life of a Serial Killer. That's, that's something. Uh, won acclaim by New York Times and Men's Vogue. He also wrote Cold, A Long Time, An Alpine Mystery, which won the 2012 Independent Publisher Award. And this is the coolest thing. His investigation has been the subject of numerous television documentaries. But the really coolest thing is the reason these two got together is because he sensed, John Leake sensed early on in the COVID-19 episode that the official policy response was illogical, that was his word, and especially questioned the very quick rejection by public health officials of repurposed early treatments such as hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, and we've talked about these on my show. So, when you, and you heard Dr. McCullough's Senate testimony, and realized he was kind of saying the same thing. So now I'm gonna turn to you, John Leake. What about what you read in America caused you to think, this doesn't sound logical the way people are reacting, the health authorities are reacting to COVID. 
It was the way that, that anything that was offered, proposed, that could help people at all. I mean, even fractionally. I mean, we're, we're just talking about preventing people from getting into big trouble and having to go to hospital. Anything that was proposed that could help, and drug repurposing, you can read the literature on it. It's, it's, it's a, a field of inquiry that's been around with great success for many years. It was instantly rejected. So when, when, when people, when you see this conduct of there is an emergency upon us, it requires a response as all emergencies do. If the house is on fire, you try to put it out. If someone's strangling on a piece of steak, you try to do the Heimlich maneuver and so, so on and so forth. This instantaneous, nope, nothing you can do. Um, it's a novel uh, vir viral illness. We don't know anything about it, but we know that you can't treat it. I, I found, I knew, well, I say I suspected, I knew this was fraudulent. I knew it was. The question was, what exactly is the agenda? What are these guys up to? So I began to research this. And at a certain point, I realized I can only get so far as a true crime investigator. I, I have some forensic medical background from my first two books. But I thought, I, I, I need a real authority on this subject, not only a top medical doctor with, with clinical experience, but someone who's really gone deep into the whole literature of this and, and understands how to treat patients and prefer, preferably is part of our academic medical institutions. And what was funny about this was I thought, well, where am I going to find such a guy? Not, not, only, <laughs> not, not only a top guy, but a t and, and this is important because it's exceptional a top guy who's actually questioning the orthodoxy that we're hearing. I mean, doctors were hearing this nonsensical orthodoxy as well. So it has to be a top guy who's also questioning the orthodoxy. And, and I was thinking, you know, am I going to have to go to Paris or Boston or the Mayo Clinic? Where am I going to find this guy? Come to find out, he lives two miles away from my house. Wow, <laughs> that's great. Yeah, so I, I contacted him and um, invited him for a studio interview. A friend of mine's got a really nice film studio in downtown. He came, he was very accommodating and trusting. And um, it was a great interview. The, the director was thrilled. He said, we don't even need to cut this thing. Let's just, let's just release it. We put it on YouTube and two hours later, YouTube took it down. That is so shocking. YouTube took it down? <laughs> I'm joking. They <laughs> just funny. are not good. It's an amazing thing. I do want to get to why that would be, but you mentioned something early on. I just thought was very interesting in your research. Uh, you mentioned the moral of this uh, Semmelweis story yeah. is that there has been a history of orthodoxy in medicine is is deadly. I mean, they get settled on a certain plan and they can't. And, and that was from your experience. You want to talk about that quick story and then you could react to that too. Well, I lived in Vienna, Austria for many years, about 15 years, and my first book brought me into contact with a forensic pathologist who was an important witness for the prosecution at this crazy guy's trial. So I started hanging out with this lady at the Vienna Institute of Forensic Medicine, kind of a fabled institute. A lot of discoveries were made in the 19th century there. Well, one of the guys who came out of this this, this milieu in Vienna in the 19th century was a professor named Ignaz Semmelweis. He's a professor of anatomy, and he also 
was a professor of, of, of obstetrics and gynecology, and he was kind of in charge of shepherding students from anatomy class to this maternity ward. And they had a very high rate of, of what's called purpural fever, which affects women right after childbirth. It's an infection of the placenta, and it can, it can have very high rates of mortality. It's a bad way to die. Long story short, Semmelweis had, and this is 1847, he had this idea that, okay, could it be that students are transferring some kind of corruption from the cadavers to the pregnant women when they when we examine the pregnant women in the in the obstetrics class hmm. maybe they should wash their hands going back to to undertaker days they use chlorinated lime they didn't know the mechanism of action but they thought he thought maybe if they wash their hands it will prevent this transfer of corruption to 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 the women sure enough mortality in the clinic precipitously plummets so this suggests that you know he's on to something. The amazing thing is pretty much every medical eminence in Europe, the professors of the big universities all said, this guy's crazy, he's a quack. And this turned into a big battle. Like he, he began to lose patience with the whole thing, started writing letters saying, you know, you guys have blood on your hands. We know what's going on here. He was then accused not only being a quack, but being an aggressive quack who kind of lost his marbles. So was was placed in a in a mental asylum. Died in a mental asylum. Okay, that is a great story, and it ties in so well, uh, Dr. McCullough, to what you were saying just a little while ago about how so many doctors in America seem to have just gone along with what with the protocol that was announced by NIH, a protocol announced by Dr. Fauci. So is this uh, your term, uh, John Lee uh, Semmelweis, thank you for the correct pronunciation story, uh, orthodoxy in medicine, basically it's a dreadful example of groupthink, the belief in something not because it's been subjected to rigorous analysis, but because one group's, one's group embraces it. Is that part of what's happening in medicine? It's true, there's a groupthink in medicine, particularly academic medicine, when there's uncertainty where they, in a sense, want to be intellectually supported by one another. And when the NIH guidelines came out and said, listen, you don't have to treat this. There is no treatment. Just let the patients get sick at home. I think so many doctors were relieved, like, oh, good. I, I don't have to take any risks here. My, my clinic can stay clean. And, and boy, this is a terrible thing. But, but what I violently reacted against was the Hippocratic Oath. Our patients are suffering. Uh, and, and we, you know, when I testified, I did it with every bit of uh, strength and emotion I could. I said, I'm not going to let the virus slaughter my patients or slaughter my family members. It's not going to happen. I'm going to do everything I can with the best tools at hand. And, and I've, I've had ABC News come to town and they wanted to interview me. And they said, well, you know, about this repurposing drugs. I said, the first year we relied on hydroxychloroquine and other drugs. The second year we relied on ivermectin and other drugs. The third year we've got Paxlovid fine, bring it on, as long as we're doing things to help patients get through the illness. Okay, repurposing, I meant to say that you're, the term repurposing, I hadn't known about that term until COVID, it just means existing medications have treated other diseases, and when you get a new thing coming along, seeing can we, will that possibly work here too? That's all that means. That's what it means, right. Okay, so that's true of ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, budesonide, prednisone, colchicine, aspirin, 
uh, enoxaparin. We use drugs in combination. I think one of the fault lines here is that so many people said, oh, there must be one pill to treat COVID, and if that one pill doesn't work, we can't do anything. It's like, no, we use multiple drugs to treat staph infections, pneumococcal infections. We always use drugs in combination. You know, I was struck uh, interviewing you and then Dr. Richard Bratlow has been on my show, other doctors. And um, what I'm really struck by is, you know, I don't have any medical background, but if you've practiced, if you've gone to medical school and you've gone through your uh, internship and residency and all that, and you practice medicine, you have a familiarity with drugs and how they interact with the body, what they do. So it seems like people should be cheering on doctors, using their education, using their knowledge and not and not pushing back. It should be just, oh good, this doctor realized XYZ might work here. When were any doctors in the pandemic, either outpatient or inpatient, held up to America as heroes? Think about the inpatient service. Uh, where, where's the innovation in terms of new approaches in the hospital? What hospitals have the best overall COVID mortality statistics? Where are the centers of excellence? There's actually been an oblivion to treatment on the inpatient side. The inpatient side is almost a black box. People get admitted, they're put into isolation. There doesn't seem to be any bravado in terms of who's best in taking care of COVID-19. And the other thing I know everyone knows, but just to confirm it, the uh, original idea of people arriving at the hospital when they were very, very ill and, and struggling breathing and putting them on ventilators proved to be uh, fatal in far too many cases, basically, right? That's yeah. true. Far too many people were put on the ventilator. Part of it was fear of contagion. This idea that, well, we can put an endotracheal tube in and actually kind of cap it off and control the contagion, that fear actually led to premature uh, intubation and far too many people went on the ventilator. But you know, to this day, the contemporary intensive care unit mortality, according to the Stop COVID program out of Harvard in the United States, if someone's sick enough to be with COVID in the ICU, 30% mortality. Our most risky heart attack, I'm a cardiologist, is an inpatient mortality of 2%. I'm telling you, the hospital is too late. I've been making this case now going on the third year. We must start early. I published recently with the Italians, Fazio and colleagues. We showed the golden window for treatment is the first three days of illness. Okay, I, I believe that. Um, I want to hit a topic, uh, Mr. Crime Writer, um, about Event 201. And I know people hear about it, and honestly, it's just, to, to my memory, this issue of dealing with COVID, this is the first time I can recall a disease or a pandemic becoming a political battle and becoming where people assume what you view about it is, is somehow political. Well, Event 201, which I'm going to guess all my listeners have heard of, but there was a, a held in 2019, and there actually the name of it was the Pandemic Simulation Exercise, uh, and it was in collaboration with Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the World Economic Forum. There's two dangerous sources, but in any case, uh, they began mapping out what would happen if we had this uh, big pandemic what would happen then and this, so this devoutly to be wished pandemic i mean the, these guys these guys are in the pandemic business yes, i mean it's are. like it's like our title preventing host our subtitle preventing hospitalization and death while battling the biopharmaceutical complex that it's kind of a mouthful but the the biopharmaceutical complex we derive that from eisenhower's farewell speech in 61 in which he warned of the rise of the what he called the military industrial complex so it's a combination of fine finance you know taxpayer you know, public funds weapons contractors uh, military bases the real estate the naval yards that it's it's a massive 
job creating money flowing enterprise war creating <laughs> and and what eisenhower pointed out is that defense is to protect the the, the security of the homeland and, and the people sometimes it's necessary to go abroad he would know about that he was a supreme allied commander but that these complexes can develop their own interior logic i mean it can be okay we want they can become voracious we want more investment, more weapons, our, our buddies at Raytheon and, and Northrop and whoever else, you know, we want to do more deals. So what, what Eisenhower correctly perceived, James Madison perceived it as well, was that an organized military interest can actually get in the business of seeking conflict. We're not trying to defuse it. We welcome it. We, we, we actually want to go pick a fight with somebody because then the money and, and the deals and the training and the drilling and we'll, we'll all swing into action. We see a similar dynamic happening with the biopharmaceutical complex where an emerging ep epidemic disease is, is um, it, it's, it's cause for tremendous excitement. Now novel vaccine technologies that have been languishing on R&D shelves are suddenly gonna get a huge injection of, of money and the other thing that we that we learned as we studied this is the financial crisis of 2008, where you know, we're told the world economic financial system's about to go down the tubes. We need a massive injection of public funds in order to prevent this ship from sinking. We see the same thing with the CARES Act of March 26, 2020, where just overnight stroke of a keyboard, 10% of the US GDP is created overnight. So what the biopharmaceutical complex is doing is it's positioning itself in advance to to capture, it's like fishermen knowing the tuna are swimming this way, position your net, and then when the threat that we keep warning about emerges, you're in a position to launch your business plan. Uh, you know, I have to tell you, I, I'm 100% with you and I, I think though that when many people hear those kind of things people have hoped and thought that well maybe the pharmaceutical companies need to have new diseases need to have new vaccines and they really don't pharmaceuticals don't make money on repurposed drugs that are patents have elapsed or they're not making a lot of money but they do make money on vaccines so people believe and i believe that wholeheartedly that pharmaceuticals are problematic but that what you're describing it includes some element of american politicians, American government, colluding with, my word, but colluding with the pharmaceuticals. And that, I think, people think, well, our government wouldn't do that. I mean, you know, True. this is... It does it all the time. Does yeah. it all the time. Yeah. I want, yeah, what, what is, I'd love to have you talk about that, Dr. McCullough, just this whole, uh, you know, bio, uh, uh, pharmaceuticals, they want to produce new things, and they're somehow wrapped up with our FDA, CDC, NIH, type folks, and I'd love to have you talk about that, what their yeah, role is. It's true, I've worked with uh, both the National Institutes of Health and Big Pharma my entire career, and Big Pharma funds about two-thirds of all research. But what happened with this crisis is OWS, Operation Warp Speed. I got to learn about Operation Warp Speed because I was the overall national, international principal investigator of the Romatriban program. Now that was a novel drug, Japanese product, bear head control of it, 
It was an anti-inflammatory as well as an anticoagulant. Would have been perfect for COVID. I work with leaders at UCLA. We had a full protocol. We had uh, you know, all the consents. We had all the documents. We go to Operation Warp Speed. We have the drug. We want to actually test it in an outpatient trial. And it was clear by second quarter of 2020, third quarter of 2020, after NIH, FDA, NIH, FDA, no interest in a new drug to treat COVID-19, none. In fact, the decision was made. It was going to be a needle in every arm. And in fact, Operation Warp Speed to this day, they have a program called the Active Program of Drug Trials. They have given a very meager attempt to try to treat Americans. And when I testified in the Texas Senate in March of 2021, one of the things I really lit up uh, the DHSS on is I said, where's the 1-800 number for our seniors to get into research and get access to new drugs? To this day, how do you, you've had, how do we actually, if we're promoting research for COVID, how do people get into research trials? There seems to be an oblivion at the top and all the way down to treating this illness. So the financial entanglement I'm asking uh, between the pharmaceuticals and some within NIH who just, it may have even started innocently, the idea that, you know, the drug companies, they want to help, tell us how we can help. And so they were uh, posing as helpers, but they have the incentive to create new medicines and the government has financial connection to the pharmaceuticals. So they're equally motivated to have, they're making money, the pharmaceuticals are making money. So it really is, it's very much like the military industrial complex. So. And I want to I want to say that Dr. McCullough, certainly not Dr. McCullough, and and um, and I would like to say about myself. I mean, we're not in the business of bashing pharmaceutical labs. They've relieved tremendous suffering. Incidentally, my great great grandfather owned a bunch of drugstore chains in in, in in Texas. He was kind of a pioneer in drugstore chain. I mean, the the whole retail operation of drugstores. And my my great grandmother. She was a huge investor in Pfizer. I mean, she saw during the Second World War, it was Pfizer that came up with this fermentation method of, of really creating penicillin that would really work on a wide scale. I mean, Fleming gets credit for discovering it, but he didn't figure out how to manufacture it, how, how the pharma, pharmacokinetics of it so it would remain in the body and not be excreted by the kidneys. I mean, this was really Pfizer. Mm -hmm. And I mean, penicillin, it's probably the relieves more suffering than any drug. So we're not in the business of bashing the pharmaceutical industry, but I think in the, in the 60s and 70s, there was a book that came out recently that documents this. It was called Empire of Pain. It was about Purdue Pharma and the sort of granddaddy of that organization who started his career, I'm speaking of Arthur Sackler, who started his career as an ad man for the pharmaceutical industry. And I think there was a, a pharmacologist at Duke University who said, this dirty bag of tricks that comes into the marketing of products and obscuring their harmful effects, it really starts with the Sacklers. And a big book came out about this in 2021. It was released three weeks before Dr. McCullough's Tucker, uh, Tucker Carlson interview about, it's called Empire of Pain. It was about Oxycontin and Purdue Pharma mm. and the Sackler family. 
Now, what was remarkable about this is all of these accolades, all of these media pundits are saying, what an extraordinary revelation about the American pharmaceutical industry and the regulatory agencies and their corruption. But no one, except Dr. McCullough, said, well, you know, I wonder if this could have any application to the thing that's happening right now. But I want to say, though, that to me, it was so clear the preferred and only pathway was mass vaccination that I saw evidence of suppression of monoclonal antibodies. Where are they? How do we access them? Why? How come, how come we don't have flyers coming down to our seniors? Uh, where, where's the ads on TV? When you call CVS or Walgreens, why do you hear about vaccine, vaccine, vaccine? Why don't you hear about availability of monoclonal antibodies? Why was it so hard? Operation Warp Speed, high tech, safe and effective, they should have had every bit of show and presentation as the vaccines. In, instead, one after another was taken off the market, theoretically because the virus mutated, but none of the vaccines were taken off the market since the, the virus mutated. It was obvious, it was a clear preference for vaccination and, uh, and a suppression of treatment, including monoclonal antibodies. Amen. So back to Event 201, is it your sense Event 201 was really a, uh, not just a research project so we can plan out what we might do, but more of a plan? Is that what you're saying? Well, I mean, since SARS-CoV-1, or what we now call SARS-CoV-1, and you know, originally it was just called SARS, it emerged, it emanated from China in 2003. I think one could write an entire book about that. And all of the ideas that it introduced to the biopharmaceutical complex. You know, for years the talk was there's going to be another 1918 Spanish flu type, an influenza epidemic. But with SARS in 03, and I think this should be carefully examined, now the talk is there could be a virulent coronavirus pandemic. And SARS, the, the first one, was kind of puzzling because more, normally coronavirus is like common colds. Like, how did this thing get so virulent and nasty? And so there seems to be this perception that there's going to be another SARS. And um, there's a French biotech company called Bio Mariu. Um, the uh, LM Mariu, the CEO, is pals with Jacques Chirac. And in 2003, Chirac signs a cooperative agreement with China to build a, a biosecurity level four lab in Wuhan. It's going to be an annex of the old Wuhan Institute of Virology. So the French build this thing. What's fascinating is the CEO of Bio Mariu, who oversaw the initial planning and construction of this lab, he precipitously and kind of unexpectedly leaves Bio Mariu in 2011 and becomes the CEO of Moderna this startup in Cambridge, Massachusetts, doing development. It's a, I mean, when I say a startup, I mean, there was one employee there. Oh, wow, okay. So this, this Frenchman who's, you know, at home in France um, and, and is the CEO of a massive, well-capitalized company, suddenly he's the CEO of, of this tiny little startup in Cambridge. And this messenger RNA technology, you know, it was perceived as having this, this, you know, tremendous promise. What Dr. McCullough and I have found remarkable, and I know that Professor Harvey Risch at Yale, he and I kind of got onto the same thing. I started asking him about it, was isn't it remarkable that among the gene sequence patents that Moderna has includes a sequence it was patented years ago 
But oddly enough, that same sequence was found in SARS-CoV-2. How does one explain that? I, I want your answer. I cannot explain that. I mean, except it for very be, nefarious it, explanations. It, 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 according yeah. to Harvey Risch, who, who has a lot more training than I do, and, and I mean, he's in contact with, with virologists and, and molecular biologists, this is impossible that SARS-CoV-2 just happened to have emerging from nature a piece of this genetic sequence that is patented by Monday. That's impossible. So this, it means hinting at the idea of a pandemic. Uh, well, they were monkeying around with this now in a lab. Now, the question is, did it accidentally escape from a lab or was it intentionally released? Yeah. Was it a disgruntled employee? Was it part of the military intelligence who, who secretly and clandestine? I mean, we don't know. It needs to be investigated. Absolutely. Yeah, I want to turn. I, I, can, <laughs> I know there's so much you want to jump in and say. I do want to have people, they want to understand where we are in our understanding. Here we are in the end of May 2022 on the vaccines, which are, or they are the, you know, vaccines is maybe not the precise word for them. They are genetic, genetically, genetical, genetic modification um, uh, injections. Is it in America today, uh, the COVID vaccines, are they largely, do people not recognize they're mostly ineffective or are they how harmful they are? I mean, talk about what the vaccines are really doing to America today. We have 16 vaccines worldwide that are either deployed or shortly deployed. And uh, they range from genetic products, which is what America has. They're called gene transfer technology, transferring genetic information into our bodies to antigen-based uh, vaccines, which uh, Australia, Europe has, to killed virus vaccines, which is Sinovac coronavirus, which is one of the most widely used vaccines in Asia, but as well as South America. What America has is we have Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson. It's either messenger RNA or adenoviral DNA. We should focus on messenger RNA since, yes. since Johnson & Johnson has been de-emphasized. For the first time in medical history, we have loaded the genetic code for what we now know to be a potentially lethal protein out of a lab in Wuhan, China, a biosecurity lab. The genetic code for that spike protein is loaded and put on lipid nanoparticles and injected into us as a form of a vaccine. The hope is we would get enough of it and our cells would make enough of the spike protein to give immunity, but not too much to cause blood clotting, heart damage, bone marrow damage or kill us. And I published in The Hill in the summer of 2020, before the, the vaccines came out, I said, this is the greatest gamble. It's the great gamble yes. of all time. We are gambling. It's a biological gamble of, uh, of millennium. Think about this. If things go wrong, if some people take up too much, it's gonna be lethal. Uh, if it turns out the genetic code is copied by our own system called reverse transcription and it's installed into us, now we're stuck with this code of the Chinese protein for the rest of our lives. That's now been demonstrated. I mean, this is turning out to be a biological disaster. Yes, and it was foreseeable. I mean, what you're describing is foreseeable as possible, not necessary, but necessarily true, but possible. It's true. So, I mean, if we would have led with Novavax, if we said, listen, we know the spike protein uh, is immunogenic and, and we can generalize, neutralize and antibodies, we're going to give a little bit of it like a tetanus shot and we're going to try it in some high risk people to see if we can get some immunity. That would have been reasonable. But this idea that we're going to do a wholesale genetic installation into 
Americans of the code for the spike protein, it sounded from the beginning like a terrible idea. And are we at the point today where we have just kind of, we've already turned the corner on that, meaning that the, bio, well, the pharmaceutical companies, the government that oversees them, is okay with this MNR, mRNA type thing that we've now legitimized it, and now we'll just talk about refining, or is there some, shouldn't there be pushback as to whether or not we should have these kind at all? We should have a thorough uh, analysis, investigation into safety. We always consider safety before efficacy. Safety right now looks terrible. I mean, it's so bad that Pfizer's been sued to release their documents to say, what did you know about your vaccines? And in the documents released under court order, Pfizer knew about 1,223 deaths that occurred within 90 days of release of their product. Typically 50 deaths, a company pulls a product off the market. The people are not supposed to die shortly after getting them. This is an astronomical news uh, revelation, a news story, and yet uh, the CEO of, of Pfizer, Burla, he goes on major TV and just advising more shots. And he's not answering for the, the deaths that have occurred. But no one's making him answer, right? I mean, Dr. Fauci isn't, NIH isn't, no one's making them answer. And so therefore, they think they're on, they're on the path to continue production of these kind of well, they're in on the act. I mean, the NIH was uh, co-owns the patent with Moderna. They, they made a huge investment in it. BARDA, another one of these um, federal agencies that's closely works with the defense and the Department of Defense. It's part of Health and Human Services, but works with Department of Defense. DARPA is another one. Yep. That that is a defense yep. advanced research product. Blah blah blah. Um, all of these guys were really interested in mRNA vaccines. The idea was, it's, 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 I mean, this is the problem. These guys come out of this sort of rapid development and deployment mindset of, of the military. And so the idea of, of the, the, the underlying concept was this, that we can rapidly obtain a sequence of, a, of an emerging virus with that sequence, we can use the messenger RNA platform to rapidly create anywhere in the world. I mean, you literally download the sequence and then with computers generate a, a vaccine prototype and then you throw that into manufacturing and deploy it. I mean, all this sounds like that science fiction writer, Philip K. Dick, who I'm sure all these guys grew up reading. You know, this is a big revenge of the nerds thing. I mean, I'm sorry to, I mean, these guys have been fantasizing about this stuff, not only making this incredibly innovative novel technology, but rapidly getting the money to make it happen. See, medicine moves slowly. If you're an ambitious, energetic, brilliant young guy who's just come out of Harvard and you have an idea for a new technology, the problem is, is the, the way these things work if, if you're doing it properly with, with proper adherence to caution is you're going to be an old man before you see it yeah. happen. Yeah. But, but uh, an infectious disease pandemic, now there's such an emergency, you know, the whole city's on fire. So everything is then expedited. You know, we are, we're going to have to do this again because I, I was going to go into what you are referring to uh, chapter four was called vaccine in record speed and it, i was trying to make a timeline i couldn't do it fast enough. That, I, that, that's fauci's that's fauci's expression by the way i mean his oh, proudly yeah, yeah proud yeah, yeah. But, but this concept of creating vaccines against the backdrop of what you dr mccullough and other doctors are pointing out early on 
we have a lot of great opportunities here to help almost everybody with repurposed drugs. And, and what is the fire drill toward getting toward a vaccine? And now I want to make that point about, you know, the horses out of the barn, about genetic altering injections that are supposed to help you, but people didn't know that's what it was when they got it. And they still don't understand today what it could be. So do we have some way to stop, I mean, to stop this before we? We learned from a lab in Malmo, Sweden, the lead investigator, her name is Yang D. Marinus, wonderful young molecular biologist. They took Pfizer in physiological concentrations, their vaccine, introduced it to a human hepatoma cell line, and which is a liver cancer cell line, but it avidly took up Pfizer, and then it was discovered that we have a natural enzyme that will actually take DNA uh, base pairs and line it up against Pfizer and then make a copy of it and then install it in our human genome, or at least the middle segment was called the Amplicon, was shown 444 base pairs for sure out of the 4,000. And Dr. DeMarinis and others have convinced me that in fact the whole code is installed. Now, the issue is once the human body has the code for the Wuhan protein, the pro protein, now you have it, now you're stuck with it. And the, if the spike protein is expressed, does that actually kill the cell or is the cell able to stay alive and just become diseased or what have you? It, it is a very sickening thought that a modified protein from a Chinese lab, the genetic code is now installed within us. 80% of Americans took these vaccines really with almost no critical thinking, no questions, and, fear. Then, and then fear. fear, and then many were forced into it now. Uh, Americans are furious. The rates of vaccination in the United States are as low as they've ever been. There's been tremendous pushback against these. People are learning more and more. The acute effects of immediate death, blood clots, and heart damage, uh, neurologic damage, blood conditions. There's over a thousand peer-reviewed publications now on fatal and non-fatal vaccine injury syndromes, 200 on the heart damage. It's becoming very apparent in American medicine. We have vaccine, in we have vaccine injury crisis on our hands. Uh, and what's happened is there's not been a single safety report. There's been no uh, discussion of recalling of these. There's been no modification of them to make them more safe. No investigation to figure out what's happening. We've learned that when these are made, they're not all the same. So the code that's assembled for each messenger RNA is probably a little different because of the, the uh, product manufacturing. We also know the lipid nanoparticles are not that stable. They go in multi-use files. So the nurses are poking it with multiple needles. There's all kinds of opportunities for one shot to be very different and then the next person get a very another very different shot. And it probably explains the randomness of who's injured and who isn't. Now, thankfully, hundreds of millions of Americans have taken these and they're fine. And people ask me, Dr. McCullough, I took a vaccine. Am I okay? I said, listen, you know, it's more than a year afterwards, nothing's emerged. I, do, I, th I think you're okay. The human body is an amazing God-given creation. Probably can fight off this messenger RNA, get rid of it, get rid of the spike protein. Messenger RNA stays in the body at least a couple months now. That's been shown in a paper from Stanford. Spike protein in the body for over a year. So it takes a while to clear it out. I tell patients, listen, if you don't take any more of these, you're probably fine. Those who are already injured or damaged, we have problems. Okay, you know what? We are gonna run out of time and I wanna make sure our listeners know the book, first of all, I love subtitles. The book is called The Courage to Face COVID-19, Preventing Hospitalization and Death While Battling the Biopharmaceutical Complex. Honest to goodness, folks, we skimmed the surface of what it is we can understand. I tell you my parting shot on this topic. You know, like when South Africa finally had to deal with apartheid, they had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission and they said, 
all the facts have to be out on the table. We can't get past this. We need something like that in America about COVID and the way our government reacted to COVID. We need to have facts on the table and so people can, and everyone coming clean, this isn't with the intent of prosecution or even blame. Well, it's it, just to say, well, I'm in favor of prosecution. <laughs> I, I can list, make a long list of people, but just to get all the facts on the table because I think uh, people got so filled with fear that they did what they thought was a safe thing. And in America, we actually are a free country. We're entitled to have facts and truth to deal with. And Debbie, can I just add something to what Dr. McCullough just said real quick? Um, I, I think the majority of the public has been operating under the assumption that the kind of vaccine that was rapidly developed and, and warp speed it bears a resemblance to the previous vaccines we've long known. It's a completely different technology. It's, it's not the same. Um, and so people need to understand that. This is a novel technology. It's not like diphtheria or tetanus. Yep. Very, you know, I really, I'm so glad you both live in Dallas because I know where you live. No, I don't really, but I would love to have you in again because there's so much more to discuss. But we're pretty much out of time. I want to mention for our happy listeners, um, if you're listening, however you're listening, I want to quickly give you some updates about the show. So this show has been rocking and rolling in this beautiful studio, which I love doing the show, but this is the last show I'll do in this studio because here at Real News PR, our, our parent company, they have new studios upstairs. So next time I do my show on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I'll be in a very different studio. And, um, and tomorrow, I wanna encourage you, if you're um, able to join us at three o'clock, we have Lieutenant Colonel Alan West joining us and we live in studio audience and that is our last show tomorrow in the big studio with the in-studio audience because that studio again the expanded studios upstairs will have a much larger studio a larger audience um, and so this is kind of our last week in these little, little studios or smaller and beautiful studios will be upstairs uh, starting again in a few weeks also want to mention next week I'm taking the week off from the show because we are moving. My husband and I have sold our house in Dallas. We're building a house out in the country and it's finally done. So we are closing on Tuesday and we're moving in. I'm taking a week off from the show. I'm not going anywhere. I'll still be posting on our website, but I won't be doing live shows for one week, which might be the first entire week I've taken off since 2014. I think that's actually a true story. So one week off, get settled in the new home. But I do so much encourage you to stay tuned. I also want to encourage you to go to our website, americacanwetalk.org. And at that website, you can always watch the show live, which is a great way to watch it because you know, I actually ran into someone, I gave a speech the other day and this lady came up afterwards. She said, I used to watch you on YouTube and you're not there anymore. I said, that's right, because I got permanently banned for talking about just these kind of topics, talking about actually playing a, a Senate testimony clip from a doctor describing how wonderfully ivermectin was working in treating COVID patients. And that was the last straw and, and YouTube took me down. The safest place to watch this show is at America Can We Talk. It's also, of course, on Rumble and all the other um, modern, you know, new platforms. You can always find it there, but I urge you to watch it at our website. Also at our website, I urge you to subscribe to our newsletter. There's a little subscribe button on the homepage. We have a once a week newsletter. I link to all of our interview shows, blog posts, everything we do. And you sign up there. It's a free newsletter. I never share that list with anyone. You get once one email a week. Would love to have you subscribe to that. And also, this is amazingly a listener supported show. So if you like what you're hearing, I invite you to do two things. One is you can join America Can We Talk on our homepage under members on the very homepage of americacanwetalk.org under members. It pops up, it says join, is $50 a year, 5-0, which is a great deal and it just helps keep this show rocking and rolling. I also, you'll see there's a, a 
tab on the homepage to donate money. I thank the uh, generous donors who've helped keep this show rock and rolling. And if you're enjoying uh, hearing news uh, from a source that doesn't have, I don't have anybody else telling me what I have to say. I just speak truth to America. Uh, I'd love to have you consider uh, supporting the show. Also want to encourage you to mark your calendar for October 15th. This is our third annual Women for Freedom America Can We Talk Summit. It's all day Saturday, October 15th, and then a Friday evening VIP reception on the 14th. We have a fabulous lineup of speakers. You will love it. My only complaint, I, I had this a third year in a row last year. Someone wrote in one of the, the comment cards, you didn't give us any breaks. Like seriously, complaining because, I mean, we just rock and roll from about 8.30 in the morning till 5 o'clock. We have a happy hour afterwards. It's a great, fact-filled, uh, a wonderful program. We have great speakers joining us talking about the military, Marxism in the military, the concerns with the border, concerns about uh, COVID and COVID policy moving forward. Uh, we have just a great lineup of speakers, and we just uh, were able to get a commitment from Tina Peters, who is the former Mesa County clerk who pretty much captured evidence revealing what Dominion voting machines actually do. Uh, she is now being prosecuted, not because she made it up, she revealed the truth, but because she wasn't allowed that access to the machines. She's now running for Colorado Secretary of State. She is one fireball. She is joining us talking about election integrity. We have a great program, so mark your calendar now for October 15th. If you're listening on radio, you're about to go off, but I urge you to come back every Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time to America Can We Talk. Come back tomorrow for Alan West and come back again. We're coming back on air Monday, June 6th. The show will be back, and I'll probably run past shows next week just so you find something to watch, but thank you for listening. For our regular listeners, everyone online, I always close out the show by telling you, but don't go to it yet, Mr. Emilio. I close the show by telling you why what we talk about matters to you. I never make a why it matters slide for when I have guests because I don't know what they're going to say. I don't want to put words in their mouth. So it's a very short slide uh, today, but I tell you why the show we, we talked about today and the topics matter to you. So we started our show today. I think we have, yes, we do. Okay, the Texas shooting nightmare asks the right questions. Uh, why it matters, unfathomable evil in Uvalde, Texas. Biden's partisan talking point response. I didn't even get, get into that. It was horrible, uh, but pathetically predictable. Americans are exhausted and demoralized by these acts of depravity um, in their midst, and which is a goal of Marxists in taking down America, Durham exposing top DOJ FBI officials as willing liars in support of favored political narratives. Imperative, transparent, complete investigation, no regard to political narratives, but with results of investigation shared publicly, shooter plainly mentally ill, since when, how many knew, what treatment, if any, he had expensive equipment. I didn't even get in this. He had expensive equipment. He had body armor with no obvious source of money to pay for it. Who paid for it? Did anyone facilitate the shooting in any way, logistically, monetarily, as a buyer? What websites did the shooter frequent? Porn? What did he do? When did he start moving toward violence? What did the school security do and not do? Americans are tired of narratives that do not provide solutions. Solutions can emerge from truthful answers to all questions and on this show and changes coming. America, can we talk? Uh, Thursday, May 26th, Lieutenant Colonel Alan West in studio. Uh, you may recall he ran for governor um, and in the re Republican primary and did not win, but he has got two new uh, gigs going. He's a great family friend. Two new gigs going. He, he's still fighting for America. Uh, the week of May 31st, off to attend personal relocation. I will run past shows. Uh, starting week of June 6th, new studio, same show, same me. And Thursday, June 9th, election fraud heroes. Oh, yeah, Tina Peters and Sharona Bishop 
are going to be in in our brand new studio, our first uh, guest on a Thursday show uh, in our brand new studio. They're just extraordinarily brave. They are really leaders in the election integrity movement. My name is Debbie Georgiatis. The show is America Can We Talk. Our website is americacanwetalk.org. Please come back every Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time to America Can We Talk, where I always talk truth about America because America matters. And I'll talk to you next time. America Can We Talk? truth about America.